0: Welcome to Hard Sell, a podcast where my friend and I give each other the hard sell on a piece of media we like, like a video game, movie, book, or podcast musical. My name's Tim Bloom.
1: I'm Cody Morin.
2: And I'm Cozy Hanula.
0: Uh, Cody and Cozy, I have some breaking news from today that I just thought you both would really need to know. I think... I, I work sort of adjacent to the journalism field and so news is and media is my passion and my business. So I just I just wanted to share some news that I think is really important uh, for I'm both of you to
2: know. I'm worried this is a bit.
1: No, I think this Why is would real? you think this, I, is, this is a this bit? supposed to be
0: important.
2: You're really really ramping it up like it's a bit.
0: So, Cheryl Sharon Rosell I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Rosal or Roselle. Couldn't tell you. uh, Is a woman who lives in British Columbia. Yeah, you wouldn't know her. She's not a celebrity. But I just wanted you to know that at 3 a.m. this morning, uh, she and her dog woke up to the sound of shattering glass outside of her home to find a bear having broken into her car Um, for some reason... She had been storing 72 cans of soda in her car. And by the time she was able to scare the bear away, the bear had consumed 69 of the 72 cans. Um,
2: What kind of soda was it?
0: Good, Great question. That's a good uh, question. Uh, Sharon said <laughs> the bear seemed particularly interested in Orange Crush, but gave up after sampling some Diet Cola. So uh, save the Diet Coke. Thank God, but seemed Orange Crush was the the fan. Uh, Roselle said damage to her car included ripped leather, a broken window roller, and sticky residue everywhere. Of course, white leather interior goes really well with Orange Crush. Roselle said. Um, I just need you to th- imagine the visual of a sugar-crashed bear lying in the wreckage of sixty-nine cans of Orange Crush. Um, and the really reason couldn't this, get those
1: last three, huh? No, just there's
0: the final three. <laughs> um, the reason this is so compelling to me is I relate deeply to this bear, um, not just because of the soda, but because I've been known to uh, to uh, gorge myself in perhaps embar embarrassing circumstances before, um, and I think we all have been the little Diet Coke or Orange Crush bear. See, Freudian slip. Um, I'm the Diet Bear. You're the Coke Diet Bear, bear. Yeah. yeah. Um episode title. Um I think <laughs> the So I, I mostly I was just curious. Do either of you have similar sort of um, we'll say overindulgence moments that you are particularly ashamed of? It can be food or otherwise. This is not about shaming anyone for eating, but it's it's just um Here, I'll put it on myself. I once, as a teenager, uh, my parents ordered Chinese food. And I I had... We would often order extra. We would order extra Chinese food and then eat the leftovers as, like, a second meal the next day or, like, take it for lunch or whatever. Um, And so I, once as a teenager, ate a full meal of... I believe it was Chinese food of, like, orange chicken plus rice plus a vegetable or something else. And then roughly 45 minutes later, I opened the fridge back up and ate one more full, at that point, unopened quart of fried rice Um one full court, and my uh, mother was aghast that I had eaten the <laughs> lunch for the next day less than one hour after having a full, like, meal. Um, so I'm just curious, uh, do either of you have moments where you shocked yourself with your own um, uh, consumption? Um, when I
1: was a kid? Go ahead.
2: Every year for my birthday, I would request to go to the Old Country Buffet and eat so much food because I I just loved the fact that you could eat as much as you wanted because I mean, that's how a buffet works, but I was Uh seven, so that was novel to me at the time. I would eat so much food and then really want the dessert because they have like soft serve ice cream with like all the toppings, and so I would get dessert, and every year I would eat so much I would make myself sick. And I never learned to portion control. I just every year would get sick at Old Country Buffet on my birthday.
1: Uh, Yeah, buffets always got me as a kid. Especially uh, my dad would take us to uh, the KFC buffet when our KFC had that. And uh, his only rule was that we at least had to eat one piece of chicken and then he didn't care what we ate. So uh, then I would just continuously get more and more bowls of pudding because they had pudding (laughs) at the... uh... (laughs) in the buffet, and I was, like, seven, so why wouldn't I just eat all of the pudding that they had?
0: Sure. I'm blown away by two things. One, uh, that KFC served pudding, and two, <laughs> that there was a KFC buffet? Was that, like, a thing that KFCs used? I've never heard of that, but maybe I've just I, blocked I'd it out. I want
1: to say there are still maybe a couple that, like, stayed as buffets, but a lot of KFCs used to have a buffet. Uh I, I don't think it went it away either. in like the early two thousands, late nineties probably.
0: I mean it's it has strong late nineties vibes. imagine yeah. a KFC. I mean KFC in general Loki has late nineties vibes, but like <laughs> definitely a KFC buffet feels peak Jinko jeans era. <laughs>
1: Um, I'm trying to think what else, uh, the only thing I can think of similar to your story is, uh, there was one day Kayla was out running some errands and it seemed like she was going to be gone past, uh, when I would normally finish eating lunch. And so I went upstairs and I made myself a lunch with a bunch of leftovers that we had. And then about 20 minutes later, she walks in all excited because she has a surprise that she bought us culvers for lunch and we both looked at each other and i was like i probably should have called you and told you (laughs) that i was eating lunch and she's like i probably should have (laughs) called you and told you i was getting culvers but i sat down and ate my culvers anyway because i wasn't (laughs) gonna let that go to waste because why not
0: uh yeah it's the only logical choice that does remind me it As a slightly more wholesome note than me, just, like, with no impulse control housing an extra quart of fried rice, um, <laughs> my brother and I, uh, Kyle, former co-host of the podcast, we um, used to visit my grandfather when he was alive, and we took a—we were going to visit him at, like, 2 p.m., and so we sort of figured he would have already eaten lunch, like— it's not really a big deal. Like, we, you know, he was he was fairly older. He didn't have a ton of money, and so we didn't want to, like... We knew if we brought him lunch, he would want to pay for it. And it was like, why don't we just... We're, we're going over it, too. I'm sure he'll have eaten. Why don't we eat first? So we made sure to eat lunch. Kyle specifically mentioned that he wasn't that hungry, but I was like, we have to eat because he's... We don't, I don't want to make him provide us with food. And so we arrive at 2 p.m., And he looks at both of us and said, do you guys, what are we going to do for lunch? Uh, And it became immediately clear he had not eaten and uh, wanted lunch. And I didn't have it in me to tell my elderly grandfather that we had just eaten. And so he was on his own for lunch (laughs) or to make him just eat awkwardly without us when he was assuming we would bring lunch. So... We went out and got Jimmy Johns, and I did not want to admit that we had done this. So me as like a 17-year-old and Kyle as like a 12-year-old eight Jimmy Judd's again, immediately after eating a large lunch, the entire time, Kyle just pleading with me at me with his eyes to be like, I can't eat anymore. Eat this <laughs> sandwich. Eat. He'll feel so bad. We got in too deep and it was like, he'll feel so bad if he finds out that we didn't. We already ate lunch. We're doing this again. So you have to finish this sandwich. And he was um he was not uh, thrilled about me. It worked out. He didn't figure it out. I don't believe. Speaking of uh, overindulging, Brendan Lee Mulligan overindulged on his players' tears in the final episode of Exandria Unlimited <laughs> Calamity. That was not planned <laughs> ahead of time, but uh, it's. I've. you know what? I'm just going to power through. And that is what I pitched to Cody uh, last episode. So, Cody, I'll, I'll hand it over to you.
1: All right, so uh, yes, Exandria Unlimited Calamity is a series, a four-episode series uh, of uh, actual play D and D, put out by Critical Role. Uh, if you're unfamiliar, Critical Role is, um, I think they're like their own company now, yeah, uh, they spun are. off of Geek mm-hmm. and Sundry, doing actual play D and D. The primary portion of their show is um, like one very long campaign. Uh, Well, there's actually been three campaigns now with Matt Mercer as their DM. Um, And this was like a little backstory into the world. Um, There's been references throughout their big campaigns to a calamity that happened like ages past. And uh, this is describing like what how the Calamity came to be, basically, in a four-episode little arc. Um, the We did discuss the first three episodes of this already in a previous episode, so if you are interested in listening to those first and haven't already, you can listen back to episode 37 of our podcast to find that discussion. Um, this episode will... F- revolve around episode 4 the finale of that arc. Uh the cast in this case uh has Brennan Lee Mulligan as the DM. Uh Luis or Luis Carrasso. I think I didn't I didn't know how to pronounce his Luis. name last time and I still Luis. don't. It's yeah. Luis. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh playing Xerxes, uh human paladin. Sam Regal playing Loquacious, a changeling Warlock Bard. Abria Iyengar uh, playing Laren, uh, who is an elven wizard. Lou Wilson playing Nidus, who is a human sorcerer, bard. Travis Willingham playing Saret, who is a rogue. And Marisha Ray playing Pasha, who is another wizard. Um, and I guess just to start out, uh, there will be some spoilers here, so just... Be aware of that now as we get into it. Uh, the episode opens with, like, 20 straight minutes of just very visceral descriptions of resolving, uh, essentially a big tree that exploded based on some things that the crew did, uh, and is killing-slash-knocking them out, uh and i was not prepared for things like uh brennan to ask marisha hey marisha do you think pasha is weaker at the elbow or the shoulder and then having her arm severed at the elbow as she is thrown back from this tree with her hand still stuck to the tree
0: it's so fucking metal yeah it's yeah. it's it's so it really is like they spend the first Close to 20 minutes, just rolling, like, the fire damage of the emergence of Asmodeus from this tree.
1: Yeah, like, fire damage, and then they're, like, all already almost dead, and then there's, like, a concussive blast behind the fire damage as, like, all of their magical items explode. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah, that first 20 minutes was something. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um and Brennan is uh unsurprisingly still extremely good at what he's doing here and throughout this whole episode um yeah it's uh he uh, I'll be bouncing around the episode a little bit <laughs> he does such a good job in this episode uh always making Or at least trying to push toward what is the more interesting narrative decision for the crew. Mm -hmm. And, like, more fun for them. Uh, And I really appreciated that. Like, there was one point uh, Loquacious encounters someone and is trying to put a wall of force around him. And uh, he fails the... Or the, the person he's trying to put around succeeds the role... And Brennan just looks at him and just asks, how does silvery barbs work? Mm-hmm. Uh, basically prompting like, hey, maybe you should use this thing because it'll make this more interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not in like a, hey, don't forget that you have this thing. It, it didn't feel like that in the moment. But mm-hmm. um, just things like that, I really appreciated.
0: Yeah, I think it's, I think that kind of thing is so important to also have in a session where you spend the first 30 minutes killing all of your players. Like, that sounds like a and d horror story of, like, my DM, like, gleefully just rolled damage and total party killed us and whatever, and, like, that just to, like, railroad us into his story, but I yeah. think a like that's just not the case here like the emergence of asmodeus is so clearly triggered by all of the actions of the party um so it's not it doesn't feel like brennan punishing them in any way they've punished it's, themselves but it's yeah it's also
2: kind of the premise of the campaign so it's yeah not, like they're all expecting this to be the end it's a calamity <laughs>
0: Yeah. yeah, but you you can tell listening to this that, like, Brennan is a fan of the players and the characters. His goal is to tell a tragic story where they basically all die, but uh, they are still the protagonists and he has, like, a... He's still interested in making sure that they the camera sees them as the protagonists instead of just, like, failures who get whomped by his evil god. Um, and I think that line is one that is hard for uh beginner gms to tread and he does a very very good job in this in really the full campaign but especially when it gets the most difficult in this last session
1: yeah and you can tell uh i did also watch um the recap afterwards sure um and you can tell just how much planning goes into it like all the different contingencies he talks about having for basically anything that might happen that could kind of like derail things in a way that would be bad for like the players or the story mm-hmm. of like how to make all of that work and so you know maybe some of these things that he's like prompting are to avoid having to like use those contingencies cuz they're maybe less interesting mm-hmm. um but it just, it shows all of this planning you can tell pays off throughout this whole, not only the, like this episode, the whole series, but um, especially throughout this episode.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I think going off of what you said, Cozy, that that's like the premise, I think it it does make for a more uh, interesting in different ways sort of story. Um, you know their their typical uh, what when I had talked about up top is that you know their typical ones are very long form campaigns. We're talking like over a hundred four to six hour long D and D sessions mm-hmm. to play through a single campaign. Um, it's it typically either that or like a one shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is you know. It's slightly longer, I think it's like 20 hours total between the four episodes, but you have a very kind of specific world that you are building these characters into, and you know that the end of this is going to be basically an a world-ending event uh that results in a calamity that lasts for like hundreds of years as this uh region of the world is basically torn asunder.
2: Mm-hmm. And so I
1: think the the things that you can do with characters and the world building going into this is really interesting knowing that like uh I just thought it was, it. it's a very cool premise for their show, and I think it worked for them very well in the end. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think Brennan does a really good job. Like, it's clear he, I think that is the needle that they managed to thread of, like, the point of this is to, like, flesh out the world of Alexandria more and give... Mm backstory to the calamity like give it a face a little bit and give a you know explain how and why some things came to pass but it doesn't ever feel like a lord it feels like they are playing a game that like is the focus is on telling a good story in the moment not on exposition but they also manage to do really really high quality important world building at the same time Mm
1: -hmm. yeah for sure and not only the world building but also character building too and it's there is a lot of moments where it is so hard to remember that uh, this is all like pretty much all uh, like improv like a normal D&D like session would be Mm because some of it like feels scripted there is yeah. one point that technically is a character reading something he's written down. Uh,
2: yeah, but reading something he wrote down <laughs> five minutes prior... Right. ...during the session, so...
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not like he prepared it in advance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah,
0: you can watch him write it as other people are doing
1: things. <laughs> right. Um, which is easier to do when there's so much... When every character is given a lot of focus, um, and some characters uh, like have such a long gap between when they get to do something. But I think that works out totally fine too. So Serret, uh at when the tree explodes and everyone we've talked about is getting, you know, maimed and killed, uh Serret is the one character that was not there. We don't see Saraht in this session for a full one point five hours of game time, <laughs> yep uh he is sitting at the table fully engaged. Travis is during all of this because I don't know how you couldn't be, but he he just isn't playing for the first full hour and a half mm-hmm. and it and it's it feels fine um. Because then, when it gets to his character and what he is doing during everything that's been going on, like there is so much attention given to each character and their story mm-hmm. um and I think that's that's just another thing that Brennan does extremely well here, giving each character a like a really good character moment mm-hmm. um whether that moment is good or bad,
0: yeah. They all felt very, like, low-key, I kind of think Exandria Unlimited Calamity, uh, like, disproves the theory of critical role. Like, like, the idea of critical role is that you have this long-ass campaign, so all these characters can build relationships, and they can... You can build relationships, and they go on these adventures, and you see them all, and so that when big character beats happen later, you you really feel it. You've built this connection. It's, it's impactful. It's the difference between say a miniseries and a movie of the more time you have, the more, um, uh, investment you can have. And I feel like they managed to hit really, I don't feel like they miss with character beats. There are, there are character beats in main critical role that I kind of am like, ah, eh, like that character story kind of didn't go anywhere. Like it, they yeah. feel like kind of a, Not a side character, like they still all feel like the protagonist, but it's like clearly there's a little more time given to these. And with much more intensive time constraints, Brennan and the cast together manage to make every single one of these player characters feel like very real, make their relationships feel very real, and make their full journey again for like you said for good or bad feel like complete and actualized and that in a like 15 hours or so of playtime is really really impressive
1: yeah and like even some of the some of the ways he handles some of that and that the players are just immediately on board with him there's a point he's talking to um lou about nidus Mm-hmm. At the, I think near the end, asking him, like, do you think people will remember your dream? And Lou responds, no, and that's okay. It was real to us. And then Brennan jumps in without prompting or anything into, like, a flashback as Lou's brother to them, like, looking up at the city of Avalir. Mm-hmm. Um And just, like, moments like that, giving, giving the characters opportunities to... To have those kinds of moments. It's just, it's really cool. Um, the the two moments like that that stick out to me the most, uh, I think, from this episode are uh, at the beginning, after uh, all of the explosions, Xerxes <laughs> is uh, talking to uh, Asmodeus, the lord of the hells, as he's come into the world. hmm uh, and I went back and rewatched it because I wanted to get the wording right. Yeah. Uh, but and I still get chills when I watched it again from like Brennan getting into character oh. as Asmodeus when Xerxes is trying to cast a spell to atone him of his sins. Um, and it doesn't work and Brennan slowly getting into, like, the evil Asmodeus voice as he says, "'You're trying to atone me, and I didn't do anything wrong.'" And just, like, the reaction of, like, everyone at the table at all of this, it's just... Uh, That is all extremely good, and that that whole back-and-forth that happens before and after that with Xerxes is awesome yeah
0: brennan's portrayal of asmodeus is incredible is like the the like level of acting and like i i don't believe that any of it's scripted but as a gm i've definitely have like thought through dialogue i don't think he he fully like came up with every single one of those lines Mm -hmm. on the spot but regardless the ability to like engage with xerxes and that that back and forth we have of the like there's that interaction went extremely viral you don't use tiktok but my tiktok for a full month or two was like different edits of that with different dramatic music behind it (laughs) um, different parts of his monologue as asmodeus and it is like by far the most compelling characterization of that character Where I feel like I fully understand... Like, this is the thing I was talking about in our last episode... When I was talking about Princess Mononoke... Of, like, the thing that is best about complex villains, in my opinion... Is when you can see the villain's perspective... But it's not done in a way that's like... Actually, they're the good... Like, everyone's good from their point of view... Like, Asmodeus is still evil... And he manages to, again, thread this needle of like, I fully understand how someone like Asbadeus reaches this level of depravity, but also the, at no point is Brendan trying to convince the players of the audience that they should switch sides and agree with Asbadeus. And like that, yeah. the like, just overall, like this, the, you might be about to talk about overall just like the quality of the dialogue in this session for improv dialogue especially a session that goes six hours long i think they've talked about the session went until about three in the morning uh and from like when they were recording it and from top to bottom from like the very beginning of this stuff to the very end the quality of dialogue is so fucking high that it is honestly intimidating as somebody who runs (laughs) games like it's so so impressive
1: yeah like from everyone all around um
2: yeah this cast is incredible
1: yeah it's uh pretty crazy um how how, just how on everyone was the whole episode
2: well and even thinking about like I, I, as far as I'm aware, I don't think that they, like, some of them have not played actual plays together.
0: No, many of them.
2: So, like, it wasn't even, like, like, it's the Critical Role cast who've been playing together for, like, years and years all together or whatever. Like, it was people who've never played, like, never been at a table playing these games before, and they're still hitting these, like, incredible character moments together and dialogue together and all of these things. It's just, yeah, it felt like they had really, like, captured lightning in a bottle with the um, cast and, like, premise and just, like, the way that this came together.
1: Um, The other moment that I had was the one we had referenced before of a character having written something down, uh, Mm -hmm. and this was uh, Sam Regal giving uh, basically a... Uh, giving an address uh, televised essentially to, like, the city, the fly- the flying city of Avalir and to the city below them. Mm-hmm. Um, his whole speech was great. He's got me, like, in tears as he's telling people to, like, remember all of the um, different members of the party and, like, different things about them and Uh, and then the, uh, as Brennan described it, the perfect joke at the end of the, (laughs) um, at the end of it, as he still gives a little ad read for, uh, the Market of Wonders, I believe.
0: Yeah, I think that's correct.
1: Um, his just... The fact that he, like, can write all of that down a few minutes beforehand and give it as a, like essentially as a fully prepared speech in character is just it's good stuff It's yeah. very good yeah <laughs> it's wild
2: i mean that that speech like you also like you you go from like crying at the end of the speech because it's just like beautiful and then he like makes this joke about the market of like does an ad read at the end which is funny and, like, so you're, like, crying and then laughing, which is just, like, the most Sam Regal moment of an actual play. Mm-hmm. And he does the ad reads for Critical Role generally. So, like, the ad read coming from him also just, like, makes it that much better. Because <laughs> <laughs> it feels like one of his, like, jokey ad reads for Critical Role, but he's also playing his character. It's just, like, a great character for Sam, and I, I loved it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like, I fully agree. That moment is great. Those you picked the two moments that are, are two of the moments that like I also would call out. And like they overall, every single one of these people, if you count like Brennan's characters being Asmodeus, every single one of these people is playing to their type in a way it doesn't feel like they're playing a it doesn't feel lazy. But, like, they are playing to their strengths. Every single one of these people has picked a character and picked a vibe and an energy that fits so well with what they are good at and what they are good at, like, expressing as characters in the table. This is why I think it feels like lightning in a bottle, is you have all of these people, this kind of story, this sort of, like... Really tragic, but also really beautiful story is so up Brennan's alley. Like, every single one of these player characters of Travis being the, like, protective, overworked, stressed dad, like, all of them are so right within their wheelhouse. And I think Loquacious and Sam is another really good example of just, like, you can't find a group of people who have a better understanding of what they like, bring to a table and a better mix of those different strengths.
1: Yeah. Uh, you mentioned dad there, and I feel like I have to jump into that portion of this now. Sure, um, sure, yeah. Lou Wilson, at one point, uh, later in the episode, uh, says, Why's everybody gotta have families in love? Because... <laughs> a number of characters made a number of the players made the character decision of bringing their uh characters children into this story uh-huh uh <laughs> which is an interesting decision when you know that what you are role playing is the end of the world essentially mm-hmm. um knowing that you are going to have to as a character deal with more than likely something going wrong with your children at the end of the world in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, as And especially as someone who has two children, um, uh, there's definitely a few moments that I was tearing up a little bit as they were like, and Brennan just does such a... <sighs> good job of playing like a sad confused child (laughs) not understanding you know why their dad that they haven't seen in seven years has uh like demon horns all of a sudden and is saying basically final goodbyes and leaving while they're crying and it's like oh come on
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yes, I do not have children. And still that moment and like, every, basically any moment Sarah was on screen like <laughs> yeah. wrecked me. It's so yeah. and like, you have to do like this is the thing, right? It would be much easier to be like, I'm the lone wolf here for the end of the world. But like this is if you want to make this feel real and feel tragic. These are the kinds of people that would be hurt by things like this. People with families and friends and, like, lives that they lived, and being willing to introduce that stuff and know that you're going to have some intense things. Like, you've got to be, if you're going to do a story like this, you've got to be in. And, like, every one of these players is, like, willing to. You know, they're all in tears at various points in this session. They all knew that was going to happen. They were all bought into this premise.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, you talked about sarah like his. When we finally get his screen time uh, almost two hours into the episode, uh, his screen time is he finds his children scared at home he uses an item to teleport them away to his mo- to their mother, who is long away somewhere else. Um, and then he's alone in his home. And he uh, is looking at his ring, realizing how much time that ring took from his family. And Brennan says that, you know, like, through all of this, you still don't get to hear the laughter of your family just like so many long nights. Um, and it's just like giving, giving these characters those realities is, uh, I it, I mean, it makes for very compelling storytelling and character building for sure.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Um, but yeah, the, beyond the character stuff, the actual like d d playing, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the... One of the parts in Critical Role typically uh, that gets can get a little long is the combat. It's not mm-hmm. usually the like most interesting part of the actual play D anD D. Like there are usually, depending on how combat goes, there can be some interesting story beats that come out of that. Um, but the combat itself is usually more interesting for the players, I think, than it is for the people watching it compared to like the storytelling that we've been talking about so far. But that being said, uh, there were some interesting decisions in this combat that I thought were very cool. Uh, it was built to be relatively short. Um, Mm -hmm which I think works for this episode in this format, that it was basically built to be, you need to survive three rounds of combat. Yeah. Um, one of the enemies that they have to fight is one that was referenced earlier in the series uh, that one of the characters, Nidus, had created to basically um, be, like, guards, I think, like, in the city, protecting people from like, anyone in the city who goes rogue and, like, that kind of stuff. Like, they're built to be, like, anti-wizard. I think the implication... I don't remember exactly what.
0: Yeah, so, within Critical Role proper, the, as as a reminder, for those who didn't watch this or those who don't remember, they are on a big flying city, and there are uh, many other flying cities in the world, all run by different cabals of wizards, basically. And there's allusions to a potent like potential conflict with another flying city called Aeor. i think the implication is he's built like war machines uh, built either to try to conquer the wizards of Aor or to defend Avalir from they they are like mage killing soldiers is the
1: uh i
0: think the implication
1: and the way that that is built into the enemies uh, alone is makes for much more interesting fight mechanics on the part of the players because one of the mechanics um, if you if you are unfamiliar with Dungeons and Dragons gameplay, at least for the uh, fifth edition, uh, spell casting characters have spell slots and higher level spell slots mean bigger spells that uh, kill more things um, or heal more or whatever. And one of the mechanics is that they this particular enemy does more damage based on your like highest unused spell slot. Mm -hmm. So characters are encouraged to burn them so that these things are doing less to them. Um And I think that can make that can make combat feel more interesting as they have to make different decisions than they normally would they can't just like save a big spell slot for some big hit or something
0: yeah i think it does three really interesting things actually one is is that of like it makes them strategize in combat differently two is that i think it adds like the flavor is really interesting and fun of like Mm -hmm. imagining how these these automaton were designed but Three is all it's sort of brilliant from like a storytelling perspective. Cause if I'm designing this fight as Brennan, what do I want at the end? At the end, ideally what I want is a fight that feels that either the party doesn't win, uh, and you know what I want is a fight that the party doesn't win, that they basically just barely manage to survive with nothing left that as the last one dies, they hit the button. At, yeah. at the third round to go. And at building in a mechanic that encourages the, them to spend resources. Guarantees that they... Even if my rolls suck and it doesn't go the way I want. And they all survive. They'll all be spent at the end. So I will... The visual will still be them like broken and exhausted. Even if they destroy me. <laughs> so like it's a, it's a sort of brilliant uh, thing to introduce to help get you to, this is how like brilliant GMs manage to do things without railroading of like, I've introduced this thing through mechanics that will get me to where I want in the story. Also, that is really, really, really smart.
1: Yeah. And then you get more of those moments during this fight too, with Brennan, again, trying to find the like more interesting option. Um, And then still producing awesome moments like uh, Serret rolling an at 20 to uh, kill the like main big bad that came into this room at just the right moment. Mm -hmm. Um, He talks about in the recap that like he had contingencies for if that didn't work, but presumably this creates the better narrative.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was so much stuff online about like that interaction was not, like, rules as written, and I'm like, shut the fuck up. Like, this, it's the end of the campaign, and it's not so, like, it. at the end of the day, he still needed to roll the dice. Like, it's not a, you know, if he would have rolled a nat 1 instead of a nat 20, it wouldn't have worked. It's like Brennan, I think Brennan wound up, like, giving him advantage for some sort of, like, vaguely ham-fisted reason. I think it was,
1: like, he, his character has, like, a can react to someone casting a spell, but the person right. cast two spells, so we let him react twice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and like, that was like, it.
0: Right. And it's, like, it's the end of the campaign. Like, we're playing yeah. an imaginary game. Like, it's it's <laughs> fine. Like, you know. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I've never... And, and I mean, he mentions that he's, like, home-ruling it. Like, and that, yeah. and that happens in critical... in, like, the main Critical Role feed episodes, too. Like, it... The DMs know what they're doing to like make better character moments, make better story moments between like Matt and Brennan. They're both very good at this. And so yeah, I always think it's funny when I have read comments in the past of them getting mad about how one of them home ruled something. It's like, come on, get you have to get over this and like
2: well, and it's also... see
1: past the uh the rules lawyering here.
2: Well again, it's like it feels like it's there's a difference between what Brennan is doing here and like erasing the rules to make it yes. so the players don't fail. Where it's like it's not like he's hand waving that ones and saying they don't count or like stuff like that. Uh which again, like people on actual plays have probably done stuff like that and that's when people get kind of upset about it. And I think that's can be fair. But yeah. in this case where it's like he's just like applying a rule in a certain way to like give someone an extra chance at something, like why are we hating on that? Like, right. That way that like, they
1: still could fail.
2: And it's like we're not expecting everyone to get the rules perfect in a game they're improving six hours straight <laughs> with a <laughs> three hundred page rule book that they don't have memorized and it's not interesting to watch Brennan look up the rule for this. So yeah. just let them make a decision that feels fair at the moment and like move on.
1: Right. And, yeah, like, not having to stop and take breaks in the middle of an already super long episode to, like, really nail down to make sure you're doing the game correctly, like, it just, it would break the flow and the pace of the whole episode, and this, it makes for a much better watching and, I'm sure, playing experience for the players, Especially, you know, in this case, seeing what happens with Sarah in this moment and the reaction of the table and everything is definitely a better moment for them.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: But I mean, there's there's a lot more in this episode. There's more character moments that we could talk about. Um, I mean, there's uh, there's a moment where everyone is running off to like. They have, like, something to do or someone that they love to go find and save or whatever. And, uh, who has devoted her life, like, to knowledge and her, uh, past grandfather, uh, has no one and goes off by herself to the statue of her grandfather. And, like, even just that alone is, like, it fits the character. I feel like this character like mannerisms fit Marisha as we've talked about like the other players Hmm. like just that uh, the differences in these characters of like having this character who's who like has devoted so much of her time to this and like doesn't have like family or friends Uh, it's just it's it's extremely well done Um, yeah but
0: when you original when we originally talked about this, I remember you saying Pasha was the character that you were like least, in, not interested in, but like felt the least developed and like the least connected to. And I also agree. But they managed to. I I love where they took Pasha. Pasha is the one that feels most bittersweet. That feels yes. like most. Uh, maybe Nidus. Pasha and Nidus both are. <laughs> Really, really, really bittersweet, but her decision to, like, send everything she did to, like, Sarah's daughter, like, it's really, the way they take it, it really, it's just, it's still, I cannot stop thinking about how they managed to, in such a short period of time, create, like, such cathartic, like, really, like I said before, like, really, really actualized endings to all
1: of these character stories is wild to me. Yep. Yeah
2: yeah
1: but that's uh that's pretty much what i've got um i mean there's more here we could talk about but um if you haven't already seen the episode like you can you there's plenty more to watch if you want to go if you're interested in actual play D D and want to go catch up on the things we have not talked about here because there's still a lot Yeah, Um, I don't know if you guys had anything else. I know you've been uh, chomping at the bit to talk about this. I'm sure you might have other things.
0: I have uh, just two things really one. I think I I talked about it a little bit, but like the tone Brennan manages to strike through this whole session. Like it's really it's really dark, like uh, almost all of these characters die. And die, fail it. either either failing at what they are trying to do, or killed by truly like their own hubris. Um, but at no point does it feel nihilistic. Like at no point does it feel like hopeless or. Uh, it, you know it never feels like torture porn like it never feels yeah. like a it feels like a story with a, a purpose and like be again i keep talking about threading the needle because i think this this thing they set out to do of creating this really dark prequel with a group of players who many of whom had never played together before with a gm who'd never gm'd for most all the players but one i think yeah. uh, or maybe two i guess i think he gm for Marisha. but like um, and Ebrea, so a few of them. But regardless, like, <laughs> it's a, it is such a high wire act that to do it all, all basically flawlessly is uh, really, really impressive. And it's so easy to feel like, even if things were mostly good, that like the hitting the tone not quite right would be really easy. Like it's okay, but maybe it goes a little too, it feels a little too lighthearted and easy and so it doesn't hit quite right or it feels a little too bleak and everyone leaves with kind of a vague sour taste in your mouth, even if it's not that bad. Like never veering into that or never at least not ending on that ever is like crazy. It's hard to imagine any other GM hitting that tone correctly. Um I don't think Matt Mercer can hit that tone correctly. Like I don't I don't think really I can't imagine anybody else doing that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, like Matt Matt is like an extremely good, extremely strong DM in a lot of ways, but yeah, this this whole campaign felt very uniquely Brennan from what I've watched of him
0: yeah yeah i think even
2: the way he wove in like little easter eggs about like the name of the place where dominus used to be and stuff like it just is Mm -hmm. that kind of thing is a thing brennan specifically just does so well and i I, it lands so well in a prequel too where it's not heavy-handed it's not like he's trying to, like, steer everything to these, like, little Easter eggs. It's just, like, they feel really natural, and they're just, like, delightful for the people who catch them, you know?
1: Yeah, it doesn't feel, like, fan service Yeah,
2: and you can see the players at the table who played in the original Critical Role campaign. Travis. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. Travis and Marisha, like, look at each other like, oh, my God, that's the name of that one character we met that one time that we, like, did that <laughs> did this, th- you know what I mean? Like, they, yeah. they pick up uh, on it at the table, and it's like, even though some of the other people maybe don't and it, but it's just like good. It's very good.
0: Yeah. Only other thing for me, again, you're, you are correct. We don't need to rehash every character story or every plot beat. Cause we'll be here for hours. But the only other thing is like within the world of critical role, the thing that is known about the calamity and about like, they're in the age of Arcanum, which is like this age of all these flying cities of wizards. And like, the, the legend that people in Exandria and Matt has set up is being that it is an age defined by hubris and arrogance. And, like, the way that has always been teed up is, like, by these wizards. It's, it's very Tower of Babel. Like, it's very... All mm-hmm. of these wizards are striving to be equal or above the gods and, as a result, got struck down themselves. Um, and the decision to have the ultimate hubris not be a wizard but be the paladin. I mean Asmodeus says this outright but like the, the idea of like the ultimate arrogance is the idea that you this random paladin from Avalir could somehow redeem me the devil is so much more arrogant than anything any of these wizards have done and like that in hindsight looking at it that is like an not I don't want to say obvious twist, but it's such a, like, it's so good and it's so clean that as soon as it happened, I was like, I don't know how it could have gone any other way. But, like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really brilliant. to and it, and it really recontextualizes the age of, like, the age of Arcanum is defined by hubris, not just these wizards. It is all of these people that believe they have some sort of special purpose, when in reality they are just people who are fall victim to these gods just like anyone else. And like that, the decision to, to use the lawful good redemption paladin is the ultimate uh, example of hubris, I think is really, really smart.
2: Well, I think too, they did a good job of like broadening the idea of the age of Arcanum of it's not just like wizards magic that, or arcane energy that is like amplified it's like every skill in D. like it's the cleric's power and the like the bard's like thing you know it's it's everything it's not just like y- your classic spells or whatever so i i think the way they created these characters to like exemplify those things um or like sarah's character who like doesn't do like magic but like the skills are like amplified i think is really interesting
1: Yeah his character is really interesting too because he had said that he created his last Um, and so the fact that like in this age of like incredible magics to make a character who is not magical in the least uh, and whose whole character is to like essentially be good at fighting people who have magic Yeah Yeah. it's, uh, It's good stuff
0: Cool um, well, all that said, uh, if you had to give the final session of Exandria Unlimited Calamity a yaw yeah or a na, what would you give it?
1: Well, this will surprise no one. It's a ya, yeah for sure. Um, this is, like, I always liked Critical Role. I fell off of, like, Season 2. I watched all of Season 1. But this is, this is, like, moments of the main Critical Role feed that were at their peak, um... This is, like, just constant hitting those peaks for an entire four episodes, and particularly in this final episode. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you watched it, because it really is, like, uh, I likened it to, like, major and minor league baseball, Uh, watching this versus Critical Role, of, like, I like minor league baseball, and all these players are much better than me at baseball, um and some of them are good enough to play major league baseball some all of them on their day are good enough to play major league baseball but like the consistent quality of this is it feels like it's on a different tier from any other actual play i've seen that is like that that puts it i think i said this when i pitched it but it, it feels more like of the tier of like tv's shows and movies in terms of like narrative quality and emotional impact versus actual plays, which drive that through length and familiarity instead of through just like pure quality framing and dialogue. And like, it's, yeah, it's really, really, uh, it's, it feels really, really special.
1: It definitely is. Yeah. It's, like on one hand it makes me want to go back and like go start watching Critical Role again, but at the same time like this at the same time it feels very different and it's it's its own thing that it it won't feel the same going back and watching it. Um, going back and watching like regular Critical Role feed. I don't know. It's uh it is something special for sure.
0: All right. Cozy, middle segment time.
2: Okay. Um, so this middle segment is just like a series of questions I wanted to talk about uh, based on a conversation we had off the podcast uh, where Great. I was reminded of the time that I watched an entire reality show about lifeguards who work on this one Australian beach and rescue people through a series of TikToks. Which is arguably the worst way to consume a TV show. (laughs) Um, But so I was curious if you guys had any stories about the worst way you've consumed a piece of media, probably not how it was intended to be consumed, unless the creators of, I think it's called the Beach Bondi Rescue or something like that. I should have looked it up and I forgot. Um, Intended this to be watched in a series of like two minute clips on TikTok all in a row. But Uh, That is how I consumed that TV show for an entire day on one Saturday. Um, What about you guys? Any uh, media that you consumed that was like maybe the worst way, least intended way to view that thing?
1: Um, I don't have any where I, uh, you know, watched an entire movie in two minute clips or anything like that. Um, For me, it is uh, playing a game on an airplane while my children are also on the airplane. <laughs> and so it is a like uh constant battle that I eventually gave up of like uh having to pause continuously to help them with something uh whatever it may be, uh dealing with one of them eventually screaming uh for a long time and also uh, as I've uh, gotten into old age at a uh, ripe old age of 30. Uh, <laughs> motion sickness is becoming a very real thing for me. Oh, so no. also battling motion sickness, trying to like play a game on an airplane. Um, none of it made for a great experience. <laughs> uh, I This wasn't the instance where I played this game in particular, but I think I had mentioned in an episode or two ago... Uh, whenever you two episodes ago, I think when you talked about how um, media that we had put down and like not picked back up for whatever reason, uh huh, um, a game that I had played uh, on an airplane where I that is the two times I have picked up that game to try to play it and then. Uh, never went back to it because I, like, in the moment started feeling sick, uh, from trying to play it on an airplane and then just thinking about going back and playing uh, the game again reminds me of that feeling. (laughs) And...
2: (laughs) And now has ruined the game for you forever.
1: Uh, hopefully not forever, because I really, really (laughs) want to go back and play it. Okay, sure. Uh, just have not brought myself to it.
2: Uh Uh-huh. What game is this?
1: Uh... Now you're making me try to remember the name um, uh, here. Uh, can cut here for a second because I need Cozy will, no, we'll yeah, leave this good. in the podcast. Well, oh, you great.
0: think of the thing I'll tell you. I have an obvious example. So Cozy, I've done similar to Cozy where I have uh, watched, you know, movies. Most recently, uh, it was uh, For the Love of the Game, the 1999 baseball movie with Kevin Costner. Uh, in two-minute segments on TikTok. Um, but by far the worst, or at least I would say most dissimilar from its intended viewing experience was in high school. I watched the full... Uh, I Actually, no. It was just the first two movies in the Matrix trilogy on my friend Chris's phone sporadically during anatomy class over the course of 2 months probably um <laughs> just anytime we could get away with it he would be like do you want to watch more of the matrix and he would just quietly pull up the matrix <laughs> couldn't really hear the dialogue didn't have subtitles so it was just and this sort was of before
2: airpods existed so he oh, could yeah. pull out headphones and like quietly <laughs> no. listen with that
0: <laughs> I mean we did sometimes our anatomy teacher i would say was somewhat negligent, but uh, regardless, uh, we definitely um, I didn't really, The Matrix is also a famously sort of convoluted <laughs> difficult to understand plot, and I yeah, a tad. really got nothing from it except like re- nothing, to be honest, I got nothing from it, Um, so <laughs> I don't really know why we did it, it just really all, it, the only impact it had on my life is that I don't know anatomy very well <laughs>
2: I'm not sure that's yeah, the fault it. of the, uh, the, the <laughs> watching shows during anatomy class, because I was also in that anatomy class. Uh, the, um, also,
1: uh, really quick. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
2: Do you know what the... No, go ahead, Cody.
1: The game was The Return of the Obra okay,
2: Oh, sure, sure, sure. Cody, do you think there's a different game that would have been better to play on an airplane, or do you think just trying to play a game while you have kids with you on an airplane is like a... Not a great uh, way to play a game.
1: Probably a game that requires a whole lot less focus. Sure. uh, Because there are things in that game that you really have to pay attention to. And uh, if you don't, you miss a lot. And that's not an ideal time or place to play that game.
2: (laughs) Okay, sure. I have one other example of the time in high school that... I tried to beat an entire game of Diner Dash in one day because I told him I could do it. And then I had challenged myself to do it. Therefore, I had to prove I could do it. Which at the time, I loved the game Diner Dash, but playing it for an entire day straight. And like, I think I got stuck on like the last like series of levels and then couldn't get past it. And then like actually did finish it but then there were like extra levels I didn't know about because they weren't on the map and they were at first place I was so frustrated because I was like I have played this game for like 15 hours straight and I am not having it anymore (laughs) um may have ruined that game for me but uh so yeah that's another time where I was like this is maybe not how this is meant to be played (laughs) it's a very monotonous game to play for that many hours straight
1: yeah, that feels like a game that's built for the, like, pick up and play for 20 minutes, half an hour, do a couple levels, and then drop it for a little bit.
2: Really, Most certainly, that is the intended way to play that game.
0: <laughs> you and I should have traded media consumption uh, experiences. Where I really should oh, have yeah. just marathoned the Matrix, and you should have been playing <laughs> this in anatomy class.
2: True, true. That is uh, That is fair. Well... On the flip side, those are our worst ways to watch or consume media. Is there a time where you've, like, watched a thing, like maybe it's a movie in a theater or, like, really good sound on something that you're like, this is the best way to view this thing, and it made, like, the watching experience better or or whatever, like watching or playing or whatever it is?
1: Um, I think, for me, it's anything where I can feel the most immersed in whatever it is. So uh, especially seeing a film in IMAX um, where you are so much more surrounded by the film. Like I remember seeing Dunkirk in IMAX um, and we had like perfect seats right in the middle of the theater. And I think that adds a lot to that viewing experience or um, the most immersed uh, is doing it in VR um, mm-hmm. I've got like a an old, uh, old, uh, Oculus Quest one, um, that I've like played games and watched stuff on. And, um, the, the immersion that you get for that is so different from just like sitting and watching a movie on my laptop or something like that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Have you I watched mean, movies on your, um, what is it, Oculus? Is that what it is? Uh, yeah,
1: I think I watched, I think just one, uh, the Spider-Verse. Oh, um, yeah,
2: that's a good one to pick for that, too.
1: Yes, especially because you've got like, the 3D effects and everything.
2: Yeah. What would you say, Tim?
0: I said there are bad movies to pick for that, like Climbing Documentaries or Human Centipede. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, maybe uh, a bad did choice. Did
2: you do that, or are you just saying, for example? No,
0: I'm just I'm just contemplating. Um,
1: <laughs> writing down things to pitch to him in the future. Yeah, great. <laughs> wonderful. Um, Free solo by, in by VR. Yeah, there we go. God, I'll <laughs> throw up and cry. Um, Human I Centipede think... was bad enough in uh, your cousin's dorm room. Yes, room. I can imagine. I'm glad I didn't join you. Yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> Uh, I for me it's yes I think it's true that like watching a movie in a theater is almost always more affecting, um, than otherwise. Now, is it fifty dollars more affecting? I don't think so, but I, yeah, I do often think that's that it's a better way. Um, the thing this actually made me think of was sports. Actually, uh, I watch a oh, lot sure. of sports, and I enjoy watching sports by myself. But i I would say it is universally a better experience to watch sports with other people. i as assuming the other people also want to watch the sports, it is a worse experience to watch sports with other people <laughs> who are complaining about the fact that sports are on or disinterested. <laughs> but, Anytime I am watching, whether it's live, whether it's physically being at a game, ideally, or even just, like, in a room or at a bar with other people who are paying attention, it is always, even if you are on the wrong fan side of a stadium or a, a bar or whatever, um, it just it's just a better experience to, like, feel immersed in a crowd. Or even literally, like... I have a group of friends who are Timberwolves fans back in high school, and we have for Timberwolves playoff games in the past, like, pulled up a Discord call and just, like, watched the game all on a call. And it is a way better experience than me just, like, watching it on my computer without engagement. Um, so that was that's what came up for me.
2: I feel like that is true, that sports are better with other people, but I feel like you also have expressed the opinion that you would rather watch sports, or that sports, it's better to watch sports on TV than in person because you can, depends like, on see the sport. better.
0: And it depends on what you're doing, right? Like, if, if what I want to do is understand the game and the strategy and what happened at a play, football, American football especially, is better to watch on TV. Like... You can see more of the play. You have a much better angle. Like, it, it just is a better experience. But I don't think that's true of all sports.
2: Well, I think, like, F1 is probably similar. Where, again, like, we, sure. if you went to a race, you probably are getting the, like, fan, the vibes and the, like, experience. And the, like, getting to see the fast cars and all these things. But, mm-hmm. like, on, t- you're not going to be able to understand the race from the stands in the same way you do, like, on TV. Yeah, but it's not that either is like a better experience. It's just like, to your point, what, what are you trying to get out of the experience? I think for me, the, like the example I had for like the best way to experience a thing is just like when I listen to a pot, like a fiction podcast or like a RPG podcast while doing a puzzle, because I feel like I do a lot of listening to podcasts while I like do chores or something. And then I like miss half the podcast. I'd like go back cause I miss stuff, but like doing a puzzle, is like the perfect level of, It keeps my hands busy without being too, like, brain-consuming so that I can, like, actually feel like I'm listening fully to the podcast and I just like puzzles a lot. But that's, for me, the peak way to listen to, like, fiction podcasts is while doing a puzzle.
0: That's a good one. That's Football Manager for me. Like, podcasts that Mm. require brain space, Football Manager is is my go-to of, like, it gives me something else to do to where I stay engaged and I don't get bored just sitting listening, but it's not too much, you know, I've played so many hours of football manager, I can do it basically on autopilot now, so it's not so much that it actually, like, I get distracted or miss things.
1: Yeah, doing chores is actually when it works best for me. Um, that or driving. Uh, yeah. But the, especially, like, doing dishes. Um Sure. You know, if we have like a half an hour's worth of dishes from, you know, a combination of like dinner and Kayla baking something for a client or whatever, um, like to just zone out to a podcast while I do all the dishes or something, uh, that's that's my preferred way of consuming a podcast because, like, I There are some people who will listen to podcasts, like, while they're working, and I just, my, I have to think too much while I work (laughs) for me to possibly comprehend what's happening on the podcast and my work at the same time.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I can't do that anymore either. I used to be able to do that when I was younger, and I don't know if it's, like, my work has become more intellectually stimulating or I'm old and don't have the (laughs) mental energy to do, but maybe some of both. Bit of both.
2: Yeah, I I think my work has shifted a lot where like some things I really need to think about and then there's other times where I am literally like working on a PDF for probably a full week straight, like cleaning stuff up and it's like a little mindless so I can definitely put some podcasts on while I do that. Whereas if I'm like trying to design a building, spoiler alert, can't listen to a podcast while I'm figuring that out.
1: <laughs> the people who uh, are going to utilize that building will probably thank you.
2: Yeah, Well, cool. Uh, What's interesting to hear different ways we have ideally or less than ideally consumed media. So thanks for going down this weird uh, trade of thought with me.
0: All right. And finally, I will turn it over to you, Cody, for this week's pitch.
1: Yeah. um, We've talked on and off the podcast a little bit about, like, Retro games versus modern equivalents and things like that, and I've got a game for you today. Um, How do you feel about, uh, or what is your experience with, if you've played through many of them, uh, classic Zelda games? I'm thinking, like, the original Zelda 1... Link to the Past, Link's Awakening, the Oracle games, anything like that. I guess,
0: yeah, question is what is what is a classic Zelda game at this point? The games I grew up with as kids probably are viewed as classic Zelda games now. Right, uh, which is terrifying. I think I've I have dabbled in the original Zelda games. Um I haven't, I've like bounced off of them that I've mm. touched like the little 2d scroller ones mostly or not scroller, but you know what I mean? I don't know yeah. how to describe it. They're like, around. like on individual
1: screens and you go from screen to screen. Yeah, little whatnot, square yeah.
0: boxes that you move from one to one. I, I have, I've sort of bounced off of them. Not, not out of any real, you know, it's me. So like I die once and I'm yeah. just like, all right, <laughs> never mind. I shut the game off and I'm done. Um, so I, I've I've dabbled a little bit, but I've never like really considered playing one. I did play. What is the seasons one with a red? What's the red se- f- season? Uh,
1: there's one. Oracle of Seasons.
0: Okay, so Oracle of Seasons I had on the Game Boy. I never beat it, but I played through probably half of it as a kid. Mm-hmm. And obviously, Ocarina of Time was like my favorite Nintendo sixty four game. I put hundreds back in the day when. <laughs> your parents would only buy you like one game a year and you just played that game forever uh-huh. mm-hmm. um i put probably hundreds of hours into ocarina of time
1: uh back in the day you mean you didn't have a steam library of 300 games when you were like i sure did not. 10?
0: um no no i guess i still do that just with football manager but <laughs> just put of hours <laughs> in the same game but i do um I, I'm actually not a huge Zelda guy. Like, beyond other than Breath of the Wild, I haven't r- played a Zelda game to completion since Ocarina of Time. I don't think. I didn't ever beat Wind Waker. I played Wind Waker, but I didn't beat it. Um, and I don't think I played any of the other ones other than uh, Breath of the Wild.
1: Okay. Uh, so, the game that I'm pitching you is not a Zelda game but <laughs> okay. it is inspired by them. Uh, I uh, know where
0: you're going now.
1: Yes, that game is Tunic. Yeah. Um, I don't want to spoil very much for you, so this won't be a huge, long pitch, but um, looking around online before I played it, uh, this game showed up in a number of lists uh, or, like, a Reddit post, where the question was, if you could forget a piece of media and experience it again, what would you choose? And very often, people would post two answers. Outer Wilds, one of our favorites on the podcast, and Tunic. Um. So here's the deal. Uh, what, do, what do you know about Tunic? I suppose before I like dive into it a lot.
0: Okay, so I I do know some spoilery things, because I've heard people talk about Tunic a lot on podcasts, and you know me, and I don't shy away from spoilers. So when they say, like, spoilers incoming, I don't stop listening. Yeah. Um, So I know some vague things, but as discussed, I also can't pay attention to podcasts unless I'm really (laughs) playing football manager. So I know that Tunic, you're a little fox person. I know mm-hmm. that it is vaguely Zelda E, and that it is an action adventure game. That Tunic wears a tunic shockingly similar to Link's tunic with a shield shockingly similar looking to the <laughs> Hylian shield. Um, I okay, so spoilers, I guess, to our audience who wants to know nothing going in. I don't know any details, but I know. There's some sort of something with, like, a rule book that mm-hmm. you can't, that is in, like, a different language or something like that, and you as a player need to interpret it, sort of, but I don't know that what I just said is the extent of my understanding of it.
1: So, yeah, the the hook of the game is that scattered throughout the world, um, you figure this out because you pick one up almost immediately when you start. Mm-hmm. Um is an instruction manual of the game that is very reminiscent of like the instruction manual that would have come with a Nintendo or Super Nintendo game way back when. Um, where back in those days, like not everything was told to the player through the game, and there were like important details that would be in the instruction manual that you'd have to go read. And yes, there is. Everything is written in a language that was um, developed for this game. Technically, it is decipherable. Uh, Fans spent a long time deciphering the language and, like, how to read it and understand it. Um, And so, if that's something you're interested in uh, taking the time to do, you're more than welcome to do so. They also just have translated uh, versions of the stuff. Yeah. But yeah, you play through the game, find pieces of the instruction manual, and, um, they might uh, give you hints as to, like, what order you should go through areas in the game, uh, different places on the map, um... Yeah, I don't I don't think I want to dive too much more into the instruction manual piece of it cuz there there's just some things you'll figure out as you play. Mm-hmm. Um but like that that was what I that was what pushed me into it. Was like that feeling of there are these things that you have to find out about this world in order to play the game and once you find them out like you can't forget them. Mm-hmm. Um and there are other places where that matters in this game. Um and I think it's extremely good. Um I will note one other piece on top uh that I'm guessing we'll chat about more when we rev- when you review it. Uh the combat is not the best. Um sure. it's it's fine, it's serviceable, but it's it's not tight like um it, it, this is like an isometric view style game, but the combat is, it do, It will not feel like a Hades or something like that. Sure. Um, there are some options in the game menus. Uh, there's like a no fail mode where you can't die.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: there's also just a, uh, you can move the combat difficulty to reduced, which basically just cuts the damage you take in half. Making some of the fights, especially some of the boss fights, less punishing. Yeah. Um so if you're getting frustrated by the combat um because I don't think the combat is it's not made to be the main point of the game. So mm-hmm. I don't think there's any reason if you are frustrated because you died to a boss a couple times to like go and set it to reduced. I don't think there's any reason to like not do that. Sure, sure, makes sense. Well cool. I'm interested. I mean the
0: the the conceit I mean it sounds like Outer Wilds. This is how Outer Wilds works, right? Of like you're you are learning a new it's like learning a new language of like you're learning a new you're learning new verbs. Like you you it's it's like certain games have verbs, right? You attack, you hit, you defend whatever. It's like finding new verbs or new ways to use your existing verbs. Uh, creatively over the course of the gameplay is the thing is part of what makes Outer Wild so special um, and I think g- games that are smart like that's how you take advantage of being a game as a medium as opposed mm-hmm. to being something else and so I think like that sounds really interesting and I, I like like you said I've, I've seen Tunic on a lot of like top game lists so I'm very I'm super curious to try it out
1: yeah, because, I mean, in relation to Outer Wilds, you know, when when we talk about Zelda games, Zelda games have a lot of, like, dungeons where there's puzzles you have to solve, but a lot of times those puzzles are, like, kind of forecasted. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's usually a, a fairly clear path on, like, how to solve the puzzle and maybe just, like, a couple things you kind of have to figure out. Um this is much more like Outer Wilds in the sense that there's a lot of like exploration you have to do, and learning you have to do to sort the puzzles out. And when you do, it's just it's it's an interesting, good feeling the way that it like reveals these puzzles to you. Um, yeah, I'm I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on it. Cool. I'm. Cody, is there a
2: out. is there a platform you recommend playing Tunic on?
1: I've played it on the Steam Deck, uh, exclusively, and I thought that was great. I don't think, um, I don't think there's probably a bad, uh, way to play it. Um, cause it's not, it's not particularly difficult to run. It's a, uh, fairly small game, all things considered.
2: Cool. Um, okay.
1: But for me, it felt good to play it on the Steam Deck, so. Okay, Cool. cool.
0: I will dig into it and report back next episode. Sounds good. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of hard sell. We'll be back in two weeks with my review of tunic as well as our next pitch. In the meantime, rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. If you have any other ideas for media that we should be checking out, feel free to shoot us an email at hardsellshow at gmail.com follow us on twitter at hardsellshow you can follow us on twitch at twitch.tv slash hardsellshow for when we occasionally stream uh but until two weeks from today or two weeks from the episode release because you may be listening to this whenever uh we will catch you on the flippity flop
1: catch you on the flippity flop